It's a game of bringing on the basics. I'll give you, it's tough. Everybody's carrying around a phone in their pocket and that's really tough with associates because they get bored and they're going to get drawn into their favorite girlfriend, boyfriend, yeah. jackpot that's going to tweet or cluck or something. I get all of that. But in the end, when you look at the brands that are executing well and you see the ones that are being rewarded with higher sales and that are doing the job, you get something when you walk in there, you see it. You don't have to read a press release about their culture. You just feel it. And that took someone sitting around saying, what's this going to look like? And then how are we going to map it out, train it, execute it, and then reward it? And I think the opportunity is there for pretty much anyone right now. Welcome to the Seven Hats Podcast. My name is Yuval Selig, and I've been on the entrepreneurial roller coaster for over 20 years. I've experienced it all throughout my journey, the grind, burnout, failure, and ultimately, success. The turning point for me was realizing that building a successful company is meaningless if you neglect the other significant areas of your life. So today, I'm inviting you to join me on an adventure through those seven areas, what I call seven hats. Every week, my guests and I will drop valuable insights and pearls of wisdom, helping, motivating, and inspiring you to get your seven hats in order and deliver real impact with meaning. So let's get going. Welcome, Seven Hatters. In this episode, we speak with Bob Fibbs and dive deep into hats three and four, the servant and the entrepreneur as we enroll in medical school and get our degree in retail execution with the retail doctor himself. Bob is the world's leading expert on brick and mortar retailers, and he got there by building his foundation one brick at a time. See, before 1994, the retail world didn't have a champion, but when Bob became the retail doctor, he started to resuscitate the industry. Bob was named one of the top retail influencers of 2018 and has worked with giants that include brother, Caesars Palace, Hunter Douglas, Lego, Omega, Hearts on Fire, and Yamaha, to name a few. So if you're ready to learn all about retail and how to compete in this digital age, then let's welcome Bob to the Seven Hats. Bob, welcome to the Seven Hats. I'm thrilled to be here. Well, listen, I'm super excited to have you on the show because you play where my passion lies, and that is CPG. And for those who don't know what CPG stands for, it stands for Consumer Packaged Goods. So back in 2006, I launched my first CPG brand in the natural retail space. And since then, I've been geeking out on the rules of engagement in this industry. The retailers, the brands, the shoppers, the brokers, the distributors. But for myself, I've only really understood the brand and shopper side of the business. But you, Bob, on the other hand, are a world-renowned expert in the BNM space. And for those who don't know what BNM means, it stands for brick and mortar. And now, listen, Bob, I'm old enough to remember the glory days of BNM and have seen the shift over the past couple of decades. So as you can imagine, I have many questions. But before we get there, I'm myself and the seven hatters. They're going to be curious to hear your backstory, how you grew up and the influences that took you on your journey into this very specialized field of work. So Bob, first question is, where were you born and how was your childhood like? I was born in, uh, in Delaware. I'm a child of the late fifties 
And my dad was a, a social activist uh, minister. He was the, uh, we moved around a bit. He was the executive director in Trenton, New Jersey. And then we ended up moving to Toledo, Ohio in the 63, I think. My mom was a science teacher. She continued doing that for about 30 some years. And uh, civil rights was kind of the better looking, more popular uh, fourth son in our household. So my dad was always involved and out and helping other people. And quite frankly, I got the, I was the first one home. I was the youngest and would see the hate letters that would come in postmarked. You'll never see your dad again. And worse, let's just say worse and uh, pick up the phone and we don't need any. And you can just fill in the blank when you're seven hearing these things. And so I really grew up to uh, probably resent the whole idea that he was out doing all of this stuff and not coming to our games or doing anything. And, you know, to try to tell my story linearly, just ultimately, my dad lost everything, his family and his profession. And it wasn't until, in fact, I asked him at a family retreat, I said, uh, was it all worth it? And he said it wasn't because I lost my family and my kids and uh, I was able to call him the night that Obama was elected. And I said, was it worth it now? And he goes, I am glad I, I was able to see it. So he passed away a couple of years after that. But oh, wow. so, so I think a, 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 a big part of my upbringing, plus my, uh, I get it honestly, because both sides of my family came from preachers. So I just think I have a different Bible, but <laughs> we like telling people what to do. But um, I think the idea of learning uh, was always a big thing because I define myself by what I did. So I could excel at school where teachers told me I was great, even if my parents, you know, like if I got an A, it'd be like, well, you know, what do you want us to do kind of thing? And so... Uh-huh. Uh, nothing was close in my family. Um, I think we all kind of grew up as islands in the storm. And um, so, you know, Father's Day was never a great one for me or, or uh, you know, all these wonderful pictures that you'd see in the 60s of all these wonderful home things. That wasn't it. And they, my parents yelled a lot. So I retreated. You would not recognize me today uh, as that kid. And I was also beaten up in school for that. And, you know, they'd throw ice balls at us in the winter and rotten apples in the summer. And finally got to California in the late 60s. As my family is breaking apart and I'm still doing well in school, I, um, I had taken piano in, in Ohio, but I like to sing. So I joined choirs and choirs gave me that feeling of community, like we can do something together, right? And that's what's exciting to me. And so, you know, without going too far ahead of the time, you know, I, you have to come up with a, with a, uh, a major to go into college. And it's like, I guess I'll be a music major, like <laughs> randomly, because I like to sing. And uh, that was all great until you get into college where kids who were four decided they were going to be music majors. So they had the chops for theory and ear training. And I'm about to fail. And I'm just, I'm, I'm asking my professors, like, you know, I want to be a conductor. Uh, when can I conduct? And like, you don't conduct to your senior year. Like, well, how do I know if I'm any good at it <laughs> until I get there? It's like, well, if you don't know what underpins being a conductor is, you'll never be a good conductor. It's like, damn it. So I got all the way through it, did my senior conducting recital, had a 40-piece orchestra and choir. It was great. But I got into student teaching. And uh, so uh, student teaching was you had to go and be in a high school for three months and see what it's like, right? 
So I walked in on my first day. I had a couple of choirs and uh, and beginning guitar. And I walked in to beginning guitar and there are 30 teenage boys trying to play Stairway to Heaven on untuned guitars. And I just said to myself, there is not enough gin on this planet for me to want to do this job. And so at that point, I put myself through college selling shoes and I was really good at it. And I could make money. And I said, you know, my, I'm going to get a house by the time I'm 21 with my commissions. And I did. And uh, I ended up selling cowboy clothes. But we can continue that. That gets you up to here. So. Wow. So your parents, obviously, it was, it was traumatic. So you obviously was raised by a mom for the duration Correct. of your childhood. And did she have a vision for you? I mean, obviously, your dad was not really in no. the game. But did your mom have a no. vision for you at all? No. And it's, it's funny you said my dad, because my dad got a doctorate, at, uh, got his master's, got one at Yale and one at, uh, at Harvard, and never like, oh, you should be at Legacy, you should go there, like none of that, you know? So um, I ended up kind of just picking a, a, a California college. I grew up in Los Angeles uh, at that point. But you know what? Things happen for a reason. Um, of course. Wow. So obviously music was harsh on your ears. And then decided to go into the retail uh, sector, which is kind of where I assume is the beginning of your journey, right? So what was it about? Was it was it the the money? Was it the industry itself that made you excited about it? I mean, how did the transition go from working at a shoe uh, retailer to wanting to really help others succeed in retail? Oh, my goodness. I wish I could say it was altruistic and it was all about, you know, I wanted to help the world. And, uh, you know, my motto now is we could change the world by the people working and shopping and retail. Absolutely. But that's a very elevated stance uh, when you're in your early 60s compared to when you first start out. I really just saw it as a path to home ownership. I was good at it. I liked it. Uh, I, I always approached retail as just being curious about somebody. Like, why today did they walk in the store? If I find that out, I can just have fun with them. And that's kind of what what happened. And, um, you know, I ended up getting the high. I used to sell cowboy clothes in the 80s. They were very popular. In, uh, but I didn't sell like, we sold $100 boots, but I sold $1,000 boots. And it was just fun game. And so, you know, when people uh, came and said, oh, you got the highest increase of sales, the number one mall in the world. And they came down to me like, what are you doing here? You know, we have Tiffany's, we have Dorstrom. What are you selling? You're selling cowboy clothes. I go, it doesn't matter what I'm selling because selling is nothing more than transference of feeling. If I feel good about myself and I'm confident and I'm not cocky, I'm just curious how I can help you. And it's fun. And, uh, and then one day the owner, after 13 years, we're in a meeting and there's, I don't know, 50 of us because uh, we had 130 some stores at that point and, or excuse me, 55 stores at that time and said, what's a company's greatest asset? And I said, well, that's easy. It's employees. And he goes, wrong. I was like, wrong. Well, that's novel. Went around the room. Other people are trying to say something. They fail. He goes, it's customers. And I was like, huh. Okay. So he finished the meeting and I go down to his office and I said, you know, I built this, we built this company on people. Customers go anywhere. They're fickle. Company's greatest asset is its employees. And obviously things have changed. So I'm out in two weeks. And it was like, what? I'm like, I'm out. And uh, two weeks later, uh, I called up the local radio station again, selling cowboy clothes. I said, <laughs> would you play Kathy Matea's uh, Walking Away a Winner? 
And they're like, for why? We don't do that. I go, I'm walking out at five o'clock on this job I've had for 14 years. And they're like, okay. So sure enough, at five, like 4.59, they're there. I give them the keys. The song starts and I'm like, awesome. And uh, I got out of there and I, you know, for a couple months, I said, I'll be a consultant. I'll figure it out. And I went to a Tony Robbins seminar at uh, Universal Amphitheater back in the old days when it was open air. And the one thing I remember that Tony said was, you better come up with a brand nobody else can do better than you. Mm. And I left that meeting and I filed the paperwork for the trademark of the retail doc that day. And I haven't looked back. Wow. Tony was a huge influence in my life in 96 as well. So it seems like, well, we know how many millions of people he's helped, but it's really awesome to, uh, to hear that. So you spent your life in retail, obviously understanding it, learning it and, and really perfecting the theories behind it. But I'd like to, if you don't mind, I'd like to first start with the basics because I know there are a lot of listeners out there that really don't understand retail at all. Uh, they, they're entrepreneurs, but not everybody gets retail. So I believe that everyone has a foundational understanding of what a B&M is, but to comprehend the current industry's landscape, I think we need to understand the machine that makes it all work. So if you don't mind, please give us a brief history of retail, what it is, and perhaps give us a brief vision of the dance. Cause I think that's the important part that I want to get, get into the dance between the retailer, the brands, the shoppers especially their participation and experience in and out of the store itself. Well, I always, you know, I did a keynote at the, in Dubai in December to the Middle East uh, Retail Congress. You go there and you realize the origins of the mall were in the, with the Bedouins. They went from town to town. And when they stopped at a new town, they said, where'd you come from? Oh, I came from here. And look at these shells. And they would trade them. And that's how we developed it. And they go to the Middle East and you see the Sook, which is the basically the, the mall that was there. And they're still operating there. And, you know, that whole idea of people coming in. And being a community, that's where retail, I think, does its best. It doesn't matter whether you're going to uh, Sarah Jessica Parker or Reese Witherspoon's boutiques that are popping up, or you're even going into uh, Vince or some other ones, probably less so than Walmart, but that may be there as well. But the idea of community, of people coming together and saying what's new and discovering something is what brick and mortar is all about. Um, You know, in the old days... Uh, if you went to a Wanamaker's or someone like that back in the early uh, 1900s and you wanted something, the only place you found anything out about it was to go into a store. And the employees were trained probably by the brands. They brought them out to places and wined and dined them and told them all about why this widget is great. And then you came in and that was the only place you could find that information. And that was pretty much the way it was up and until the 90s, right? And then one day... The internet comes along and everybody's like, oh, we can put all the product knowledge up up there, which is great. But the biggest distinction that I make between online and physical retail is you go online to buy. So if my printer is out of its HP 64 printer head, I'm probably not going to go to a store. I'm probably just going to go and say, reorder, done. It's here tomorrow. Happy. But the mistake is if I go into a brick and mortar store and uh, I have to ask the guy, you know, I need an HP 64 uh, cartridge and he's got the magic little keys that he has to unlock the sacred cartridges from their $30, you know, crib that they're over there and hand me one. The mistake is you think that's all I'm there for. That's where most people don't get it. 
that the person comes in to discover in a brick and mortar store. And that's why, you know, when we're talking about CPG, you talk about being in a grocery store, those end caps are really important because you can, if you can get your product out there and featured, it's away from that big wall. It's something smaller to consider. You probably can sell more, which is why a lot of retailers have what they call slotting fees so that you know, you'll pay for it to be there. And then uh, the brands uh, were really lockstep behind what the retailers could do. They they had to, you know, beg and plead. And can we move this here? And can you do that? And and now that's all changed because the brands are online and competing with the very people that are car- carrying it as well, like Adidas and Nike and several others. So what does it mean when Nike says we're going to go all in direct to consumer and everybody says, oh, we should do that? You're not Nike. It's like people are like, we're going to be like Apple. You're not Apple. <laughs> Apple owns, they made it, they designed it, they control everything, they control the pricing and where it can be held. There's no one like Apple. So uh, everyone has tried to figure it out, right? Like, oh, well, we'll be like Disney, you know, we'll call everybody guests. It's like, but they're not a guest, are they? Right? Like if I said, uh, you've all, so you're a guest for Thanksgiving. Great. Am I saying, oh, glad you're here and you want to buy the pie for $14.99? Of course not. Because a guest implies there's no responsibility on the other side. To me, retail is good. When I walk in the door, I love somebody who will sell me and put an outfit together and have fun with it. Or the guy who says, we could do it this way. But, you know, I I would prefer you would do it this way because it'll be easier. And I'm like, I am there in a photography store or wherever it's going to be. But most people have so pulled back, and uh, I know there's a little free-range uh, conversation here, but you know, back in my day, if you were unskilled, your choice was either you're going to go dig ditches or something manual, or you're going to do retail. That was it. That's it. Nowadays, you could drive, you could do DoorDash, you could do uh, Uber, you could do have your own OnlyFans and strip for a thing. There's a million ways you can make money, right? So the challenge for retailers now is understanding that, yes, people are going to be buying things online. They're going to be coming into store. But the bulk of it is still 80% target said originates in the physical store, not online. And so what I work with, with whether it's my online retail sales training program, SalesRx, or it's me in person, whether I'm speaking or training, is how do you open up your heart enough to be curious about another person to make them feel like they matter? Because people who feel they matter buy more. And that takes psychology and it takes really building confidence up. You know, the old day we would say, you've all, the brand is the hero. Here's the cape. See, that's the brand. Okay, great. And nowadays, the customer is the one walking out of a kryptonite world. You know, it's World War III, pandemic never ending, fill in the blank. They're walking in. I want to be the hero. I'm leaving the kryptonite behind. You better make me the hero. And from that... You realize that your associates are probably selling for their own wallets. They don't feel comfortable. They've been the mass police for two, three years. They've drawn back. So your first job is you're going to have to make those associates feel like they're heroes because heroes sell to heroes. That's what people don't get. That if you don't train this person, you don't understand that it's your job to make their day, then I think you get into a really bad place where you're really nothing more than a more expensive, harder to get warehouse than it would be if I ordered it from Amazon or Walmart. And that's the sweet spot, is to understand the dynamics of a physical space and have fun with it. It's funny because you speak about the customer and you spoke about the customer way back uh, in the day. Tell us about, because you you have this 
and it's not a theory, it's really your customer journey map. What is the customer journey, in your opinion, uh, for the retail space? So basically, they walk in the door, they're in awareness, right? If you think about it, what it takes for a customer to leave their cocoon their home nowadays is a lot, right? So they're, they raise their hand, they're kind of watching, I don't know, Squid Game and on an iPad while they're, you know, the night before and they finally go, yeah, I think I'll go to the store. That's, they've raised their hand like, okay, I'm, I'm in. They're willing to go in and get in their car and, you know, traffic has come back in uh, New York and LA monster like the, but they're still willing to do that, right? And they're going to go and find a parking place and they roll the dice to walk into your store. They are seeking something. They don't really know what it is. And here's where so many get it wrong because you walk in the store and what's the most common thing they're going to say to you, Yuval? Can I help you find something? That would be like you walking into a fine uh, restaurant, a white linen tablecloth, and you walk in the hostess and say, hi, what do you be having tonight? Mm -hmm. Uh, uh, (laughs) Can can I look? No, uh, come on. And that's what so many go wrong. So you need a space to do that because you're moving into the second part, which is discovery, which is you have great merchandising. You have some rapport building. I'm not talking at a bespoke one-on-one. I'm not talking about tin siding salesman or something creepy that people always think of. It's just being like, I would be shopping with a friend is what it should feel like. And then they move into qualifying where you're narrowing down their choices. So you say, is this the first time you've been in the store? Yeah. Would May I give you a brief store tour? Uh, sure. We started in 1931. And one of the things that makes us different is we have X, Y, and Z. Now I will stop here because uh, one of my very first client was a little hotel called the Bay Shores Peninsula Hotel in Newport Beach, California. Uh-huh. We put these uh, store tours. We did it on the phone and did it in person. And I want you to tell you, after 30 years, it was still the number one hotel on TripAdvisor in all of Southern California. And 350 luxury properties, all the others, because that system was there that we are going to explain everything you're going to experience. And it makes it feel invitational. And then you move into consideration, which is where most people understand you have to compare and contrast. I could get this one or I might get this one. Being able to do that and then adding on because at the very end of it, you know, um, have you ever, you know, I, I use an example. Um, uh, let's say you're, you're a bookstore. And so you decide you're going to get five, four or five books. And I go, have you ever been reading a book at night and in bed or something? You just don't have enough light. I have, you know, I have the perfect <laughs> thing right here. Yeah. And you've added something on and you've done it and you've got the commitment. But the thing that's changed is, most of us can go from zero to raving, screaming person in no time. And yeah. so we have to understand that, you know, we've all been through a lot and to understand we just want to be cared for right now. And if you do that well, then people rave about you because they feel they matter. It's their store. They feel like it's you. You're their their brand. But so many miss it right now because they have cut out training and, you know, it's almost like, can you fog a mirror and show up? And a lot of retailers have given up and they say, oh, well, we can't, you know, compete with $15 an hour or whatever it's going to be. I just say it's more fun to have people that know what they're supposed to do and enjoy doing it. So if I'm selling a $20,000 leather jacket and I can't get excited about what would it feel like to spend 20 grand on a, then you shouldn't be in retail because that's the whole game of it is how cool is that? And you get to see it. Or if you're in car audio, you get to play with the cool speakers and the power amps. We work with Rockford Fosgate, one of our best clients. You get to play with the better stuff if you sell the better stuff. 
And so it all comes around in a big circle that you really have to make somebody else's day before they're going to make yours. So you got your medical degree 30 years ago, um, an interesting field. I don't think any other medical degree exists in your field, but you got it. That's right. But but a lot has changed in the last 30 years. Um, what I'd like to talk about, because what you just said, the the whole experience and the fact that the shopper needs to be felt like they're being heard, like they're they they being they're being cared for. Otherwise, it's a commodity, and who cares, right? But there were so many changes in the last thirty years, and I'm going to age myself on this because we have huge behemoths like Sears and Woolworth and Montgomery Ward and Radio Shack and Blockbuster. I mean, Circus City, and I probably go on and on. You know, these are huge giants, but none of them exist today. So, what happened in the last thirty years, and why do these? Oh mega stars that exist today. I mean, do you want me to pick off all the reasons why Sears should have been Amazon? That's what the stupidest thing in the world is, that they changed management so much and they went all these different places. When I, I remember seeing them in a mall in the 80s, they had done a new store design in South Coast Plaza, which is where I, I worked. And what they had done is they had these beautiful, they had put cosmetics at the very front and they had all these beautiful, I don't know, four by eight foot pictures, these beautiful women in cosmetics and a diverse background. So different races, different ages, different sizes. It was amazing. It was an amazing presentation. And they said, these are all of our uh, employees. And you're like, holy crap. That's amazing. And they had then gone through and they're going to bundle all these services. There's going to be Discover Card and Dean Witter Real Estate and Allstate. They're all going to be packaged. They were really on the cutting edge, but they lost their way because somebody didn't go through and say, the future's over there. It's like Blockbuster. They had the chance to buy Netflix, but they were so caught up in, but we are a a rental company. We make our money on getting the money when they don't return it. They couldn't see the possibility was, yeah, but what if we get out of that? And because they were still mailing discs back then, it wasn't streaming. And you look at Circuit City, another perfect, (laughs) since you're asking a history lesson here. So you look at Circuit City, you're like, what the hell happened to them? Yeah, well, uh, the new CEO comes in, he goes, I don't like selling appliances. We're taking them out. Uh, That's 30% of our revenue. I don't care. And then we're going to fire all of our senior employees and replace them with with uh, hourly. Uh, that means that nobody will be well trained on the floor. No one will notice. Mm. Okay. So I always say when you really look at it, the shift at the top, either you become more customer centric and you you become a Lululemon or a Starbucks or a container uh, company, or there's plenty of other big brands that are doing really well. Or you say it doesn't matter. And I think the challenge, you know, that was another thing with Sears that you used to have different departments. You could find something really easily to check out. You'd be in and out. And then they just went to like, what, three in the whole, uh, each floor. And department stores have done that as well. People don't want to have to feel like it's a challenge to know where do I pay? How do I pay? I just want to get out of here. So there's a lot of reasons so many retailers, I think, are struggling. I always come back to, Retail is a game of being brilliant on the basics. Hmm. How much do you pay for it? How much do you mark it up? Are you able to to be able to grow your brand on the profits generated? If not, there's something wrong. You know, if you look at a Casper and you're paying $400 per mattress uh, to get someone to buy it, you have to say there's something wrong here, 
right? Just because you have money underneath it doesn't mean that there's a demand for it. So, you know, sometimes people come to me like, oh, you know, we're really hurting. And and I say, You've, how much are you doing in business? And oh, it's just me and, you know, one other person. I can't afford it. And I'm working 70 hours a week. And I'm like, that's not a business. That's a hobby. It's a hobby. Yes. You know, you've got to really, and so all the entrepreneurs that are listening, you know, I, I use HubSpot. I'm a big HubSpotter. I was, uh, I think, uh, number 75 when they first started. We, uh, they were a very different little organization. And I had to teach myself all that stuff and to putting a website together on WordPress and having to do emails and all these things. And yeah, you can do that, but you do reach a point where you're like, this isn't the best use of my time. The yes. best use of my time is going, where should we go? And where do I want to be? And then asking better questions. Well, then how would I need to change? But we don't. Some of us get caught up in looking backwards. Oh, I wish I had. Oh, I should have. Or all this other garbage. It's like, it doesn't matter, right? It's like people saying, oh, well, you know, Sayers and Kmart used to be. It's like, it doesn't matter. This is what they are today. And um, I just think so many people give power to not taking it and saying, well, what would I like to be different, right? That's the that's the thing. And if you just go back to your customers, you know, we've added two employees, um, our staff for just for our customers. And our uh, our signature line is, you're the best part of sales are X. Because that's what we really believe. We're selling success. I'm not selling training. I want to hear your stories about it. And that's a very different mind. But it, isn't that what we all want to be? We want to, nobody wants to do a bad job. So if they're going to work for you, wouldn't they like to be elevated to feel like, hey, what you're doing is important. This is fun. And from that, you get loyalty, you know. And, and that's company culture, right? I mean, that's, that starts from the top. Uh, and I think what you said was really interesting. And that's going back to the basics because so many businesses, let's just say not even in retail, don't understand that they're trying to whatever is the new shiny object this is what they're chasing and i think that's what happened to circuit city but you speak about the magic of greeting customers the right way uh being proactive in building rapport becoming a trusted advisor and we spoke briefly about that but now that's all great but competition right now is pretty fierce amongst retailers and especially since they're all consolidating right and more importantly online retail as everyone knows that over the last two years experienced a hockey stick moment uh, and no one really expected that, right? So unlike the past, the shopper feels safe taking the credit card out, right? And they don't even walk through the door in the first place. So this is actually a two-part question, I think. Part one, is it accurate in saying that a retailer must do more than provide an exceptional customer experience these days because of what's happening online? Is it the experience? We're social creatures. And to your point, yes, during the pandemic, uh, online what got up to 18%. And it's now dropped about five. And we think it's probably going to hang at around 14 to 15 for a while. That's really not that much. If I gave you an 85% on a test, you'd be pretty happy. Yeah. But the image is, oh, my God, no one's going into a store. Here's the reality for those of you who think that the money is in, you know, online. 55% of the business is already sucked up by Amazon. An additional seven is, is taken by Walmart. So you're going to go all in for 36% across the world where products are finding us in our Instagram feeds and Facebook instead of 
Yeah. Just look at who's walking in the door today. You know, people at 10 a.m., they're the hopeful ones. The ones who are not hopeful, they're at a bar at 10 a.m. They want to get the girl or get the guy or they just had a baby or they just moved or they just got a promotion or they're tired of wearing pajamas. And if you're just curious about that, you'd be like like me. So one of the ways I made top at South Coast was, you know, my greeting is always good morning, good afternoon, good evening. That's it. That's it. Shut the hell up. Just ask that question. But when I was out of the store, it's a week before Christmas, the guy at the other side, and I see him, he's getting a new goatskin jacket. And I was like, ah, I know what I'm going to say to that guy. So I open the I open the doors and I go, you know, uh, good morning. Feel free to look around while I uh, turn the lights on. I'll be right back. And, oh, thank you very much. So I come back out and he's looking for $100 cowboy boots. And I just say to him, that's a nice goatskin jacket. Uh, did you just get that or was that a gift? And he goes, I bought it myself just the other day. And I go, it's always nice to treat yourself. True story. I just got this uh, scully leather jacket yesterday for hitting gold 10 years in a row. What are you treating yourself for? And he uh-huh. said, well, the book that I wrote just got optioned for a movie. Have you ever heard of The Hunt for Red October? My name is Tom Clancy. Wow. And I'm like, okay. Tom ended up buying a $1,000 pair of cowboy boots for me that day. And he was pretty hot in the 80s. And he came back to me to celebrate. Now, I don't say that because I think I'm brilliant. Just notice that much interest. By the way, he didn't pay uh, with a credit card. I wouldn't have known who it was. That much interest let me go, oh, this is a different person in front of me. But if you aren't trained to look for that, and that's the exceptional moment, that's the fun of your job, then I think it's pretty much like, so what can I help you with? You have a budget? Uh, When do you want it? Great. They're right over here. Any questions? No, that's it. Great. Anything else? Nope. I deserve a raise. (laughs) And you're like, yeah, that's not really the job. Centennials and millennials are the most hopeful, smartest, best educated people around. They grew up on the Food Network where every little move is going to get you an Instagram-worthy picture. And yet we bring them into a store and it's like, just shadow them. You'll figure it out. It's just a waste of talent. So no wonder they didn't want to come back. We've got to rise up. I think in the future, if you were to ask me in the next five or 10 years, what's the future going to be? I think there probably are going to be less physical retailers, but those working are going to be higher compensated because they're going to understand the psychology of selling and they're going to be able to understand I've got to make somebody else's day before it's going to make my day. It's like Zig Ziglar used to say, you know, standing in front of the stove saying, I'll give you more heat when I, when you, uh, I'll give you more wood when you give me heat doesn't quite work. And that's kind of where a lot of retailers are. Like, you know, if, if you buy enough stuff, we'll give you loyalty points. It's like, we'll make it so I want to buy something and then you don't have to worry about that. So it's a lot, it's a, it's a lot, it's a free ranging conversation today, my friend. Yeah. So, so basically what you're saying is despite the growth in online sales, which obviously I'm glad to hear that they're down a little bit because I really am hoping for retail to survive as, as I've predicted when everybody was saying it was going to die. But you're saying exceptional customer service is really all the retailer needs to focus on and not any shiny new object because online exists, right? And, and I don't what, want to make it sound easy. It's, it's a game of bringing bring on the basics. I won't give, I, I'll give you, it's, it's tough. You know, everybody's carrying around a phone in their pocket and that's really tough with associates because they get bored and they're going to get drawn under their, you know, their favorite girlfriend, boyfriend yeah. jackpot that's going to tweet or cluck or something. I get all of that. But in the, in the end, when you look at the brands that are executing well and you see the ones that are being rewarded with higher sales and that are doing the job, you get something when you walk in there, you see it. You don't have to read a press release about their culture. 
you just feel it. And and that and that took someone sitting around saying, what's this going to look like? And then how are we going to map it out, train it, execute it, and then reward it? And I think the opportunity is there for pretty much anyone right now. What about, so part two of that question was marketing. What do you think marketing-wise a retailer can do? Posters are probably no longer enough, right? So what 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 can we do? Well, right now with supply chain, you're noticing less sales because they don't have merch to really That's put on true. promo. So yeah. there's, there's that. <laughs> no merch, yeah. uh, but that'll be back because, you know, let's face it, the the red hot economy is cooling. The frenzied buying is is cooling for one reason, that people are traveling again. They're going and doing things and going to graduations or they're traveling for vacations. So um, we're not noticing as much in furniture and bikes and other categories that were red hot. But, you know, when you look at marketing, it's really just getting people to share what was so great about you. So, you know, I did a speech to pawn shops uh, in uh, the summer and there's like a thousand of them in this auditorium. And I did the example from, uh, I just did a quick search, the pawn shops over down Dallas. And this first one had a thousand and it was a thousand reviews on Google. I was like, what wow. the hell? And the next close was 60 and something else. I said, this is amazing. Da, da, da. This woman comes up to me and at the end, she goes, oh, I'm so glad you used our pawn shop. And I said, how did you get a thousand? She goes, we have a secret weapon. I go, what's that? She goes, grandma. I was like, oh. what, is, what does that mean? She goes, well, as soon as someone buys something, we've got their information. We send them a review. Please re- give us a review. But she calls them the next week and says, oh, how'd you like your purchase? And uh, I didn't see your review up. Could you give it with us? Who doesn't feel like a million bucks? When's the I last time it. anybody took that extra step? So people go, well, I couldn't do that. Well, you win. You couldn't. But That's wouldn't you awesome. rather do that than pay fake influencers to say they were using your product and how great you are. I mean, so I think there's never been a better time to get people to crow about you. If I was a window coverings fa- uh, dealer or I was a, a flooring expert or a pool company, uh, when I finished the job, I would be knocking on the 10 doors around there and saying, hey, you know, we just did this here because most of those people will have a party that says, well, you know, we just got the new kitchen or whatever. And your shoe leather, we don't even think about in entrepreneurs anymore. But I think, and I left out part of my story, my first client was a little uh, coffee house. He was going up against two Starbucks. One was 100 feet from him. And I walked his whole trade area and uh, found out less than a third of the people knew him. He'd been around for 25 years. His business went up 50% the first year and 40% the next, at which point I called the local papers and said, would you like a story about this? Got the local, got a, a, a county paper, and then I called the New York Times. And I said, would you be in a story about how the little guy beat the big guy? And they're like, uh, we would. And so they, were, they did the interview in July, and I'm speaking in October in 1997. And uh, I come down to the Hilton in uh, New York City, and I flip over the Sunday paper. I didn't know it was coming out. There's a color picture of me and Mike. <laughs> I open the business section, and the entire top is meet the category killer, killer. And that was me. Wow. Now, could I have planned for that? No. No, that's awesome. Do I think anyone can do that? But you still have to do the damn work. Right. If his, if his sales didn't go up 50 percent the first and 40 the next, I would have nothing to market. Yes. And that's what I think. So many entrepreneurs. Yeah, you could be that we work and you can say we you know, we're not profitable. We will be eventually. Yeah, possibly. But if you're not doing the work, then you've got to say, is there a demand for this that I can live the life I want? And if not, do I need to change anything? I mean, I've been doing this for 35 years. I just feel now 
feel now that I actually understand the job and I can execute it. Wow. No, it's true. I mean, time does create knowledge uh, for sure, especially with all the mistakes. So you being so supportive to retailers and, and, and brands in terms of conversions, right? If there's, I'm not even sure, is there a stat on conversions uh, maybe in the last you know decade or last five years? What do you think the retailers are losing by not going back to the basics as you teach and having the shopper just walk out the door? What is, what is that? Is there a stat for that? Knowledge, knowledge is power. I mean, that's that's always the thing. There are a million ways you can check your conversions. It's most basic is, you know, in old days, you'd just take a pad and you'd write down hash marks, how many people walked in versus how many people rang the cash drawer. That's our conversion rate. And you ask most retailers like, oh, our conversion rate is 90%. It's like, yeah, no. You talk to a modern retailer that knows their systems. Eh, we might be out of the 10, might be 10%. And uh, there's always wiggle room. So if I could say I could get your, if I could increase your conversions by 3%, you'd be thrilled if you're a major retailer. Mm -hmm. But we don't, I think a lot of us don't spend enough time in a physical environment to figure out why did they do this or why didn't they? I was speaking at a conference and I was speaking to the VP of Frito-Lay and she talked about all the sensors they have put up in in uh, grocery to understand things. And she goes, one of the interesting things is we found people who buy pineapples also buy calling cards and toothbrushes. And she goes, and what are we supposed to do with that information? And I always thought that was such a great thing. It was like, you know, unless it's actionable, it becomes a cocktail party. Oh, isn't that interesting? So figuring out what that does and how a consumer works uh, is everything, which is why everybody is trying to figure that out, whether they're having someone, you know, a little video camera that's automatically counting it, whether they're pinging your phone. Everybody thinks the data is the answer. I think the data is interesting. It's the frosting on the cake. But if you don't have a core underneath it, if you don't know how the system is operating when someone walks in, an average person with us is 15 minutes and they have to do X, Y, and Z. If you haven't crafted that, then I think you're settling for pennies when you could have dollars. Because nobody's going into a store just to look, my friend. Yeah. That's done. If I was going to go look, I did that online long before I came into your store. A lot of CPG entrepreneurs listening, you know, they're thinking, what can they do to help the retailer succeed, right? From the brand side. You know, I think for most of them, you know, retail sales is probably a majority, like you said, of their top line revenue, because not everybody's online and Amazon is just so big. But with margins eroding on both sides, you know, they're coupled with supply shortages right now and shifting shopper behavior. How could brands help to preserve the brick and mortar retail and shift the tide, right? In terms of participating more in brick and not having to run online because that's kind of the cool thing now. Is there anything that they can do? You're still caught in supply chain for most of them. I mean, you're still trying to catch up and figure out what's next. I think, um, you know, the whole idea is, remember, cereal was supposed to be dead a few years ago. No one's going to be eating cereal. Millennials don't eat cereal anymore. Cereal's doing just fine now, except it's becoming more expensive. I still think the basics of, there's a great technology I like called uh, Tokinomo, and uh, they are a robotics company. They have like, uh, they do a, you could do them on YouTube. Uh, they're on my podcast, but it's like a little shelf talker, but it actually, the whole bottle actually moves out and has a light. And, and then there's a little thing that speaks to you. And it's been interesting to see how do you bring the idea of gamification almost into a grocery store. Hershey's did it with a smile maker. It was a 
big kind of vending machine. And if you walked up to it and you smiled, smiled. Hershey's kiss, oh, that's um, great. those are anecdotal right now. But if you bought something that was more fun, you know, the, the challenge for every grocery store is we're afraid of the shopper who comes like most of us do to the end of that aisle, looks down and goes, nothing here for me. And if you can't get them down the aisle, then break the damn aisles up. But that's going to take more. If it was me, I would be breaking up aisles, putting things more at an angle and putting more balloons and, and bright, brighter colors and just making it fun to cook. I'd have live cooking demonstrations in there. But if you're trying to sell more, find someone else who's like you in a companion products and say, how could I get people to see this better? I will never forget at Ralph's Grocery in uh, Los Angeles. I'm in the produce section. And this kid uh, just, he's putting out produce and he goes, have you ever tasted one of these? And I was like, uh, no. And it's this knobby fruit. And I'm like, yeah, what the hell is it? He goes, hold on. He just peels it. He goes, try this. Yep. And I go, what is it? He goes, sumo orange. That was an amazing, I, I love that. Only in season January through March. Did someone train him to do that? I I'd like to believe that, but that's the only way you're going to get four bucks a pound for an orange. The other ones yeah. are on sale for 79 cents. And I was like, okay, dude, bravo to you. So I think that bringing this all the way back, people are social animals. We want to go out and we want to see someone else. And we want that spark of connection, whatever it is, whether it's just good morning and they're like, oh, good morning. Or whether it's you had this moment and you both did the same thing and that's great. Or it's a more elevated 30 minute you know, sales process where you really got to know everything that's going on. It still comes down to, is there a human being in front of me or is it just a thing for me to get out of my way? Yeah. You know, I'm, I'm really bullish on, on retail. I've always been, even, even since, even when COVID hit and everybody, cause I have a company that works with brands um, and retailers and distributors. And for the first six months of COVID, everybody was basically saying that retail is done. No one's ever going to go into a store again. And I was fervently for retail and I know it's going to succeed, but I think like you, I think it's the basics and the foundation that's going to elevate them from the rest, but that's applicable to any business, right? But I also think for retail, especially the brands and the retailers need to come together and create an experience that cannot be had online. That's going to not only save retail, but bring it back to the glory days. Because I remember I used to like walking into Sears. I used to like walking into a circuit city that experience of touching and feeling and and really seeing what's out there and what's new. And you're right. The experience was there a long time ago and they shifted towards a lower, you know, paying minimum wage because they wanted to keep their margins. But I think what you're doing is absolutely incredible. No one else that I know of is doing what you're doing, which is I'm a big fish in a small pond, my friend. That's the way I think of it. But it's not a small pond. That's the thing. You know, it's a big pond and retail is huge. You know, there's a lot of people trying to get as many employees off the floor and get everybody online. But what's funny is seeing all the D to C darlings of the pandemic are now approaching. They have to sell wholesale and open stores. Yeah. Because it's really hard to make money online. It is. And, and especially on Amazon, actually, they take a huge percentage and it's just... Margins are tough, but direct to consumer is hard because you have to be your own marketer and you have to get the attention. And cost of acquisition. And the cost of acquisition, which is huge. So listen, God bless you. I, I know that a lot of 
my listeners who are in the CPG space, which they are, um, will go in and grab some of your stuff. We'll talk about that in a second, but I do have one last question, which I ask all my guests. Who did you have to stop being and who did you need to become to manifest your current success? <laughs> so I'll take it back to 2008. I find a letter from my dad. I'm going. I'm going to retire when I'm 40. The Mid Hudson Valley. I've never been there, but I want to live there. I'm reading when I'm 50. I'm like, ah, I'm getting the hell out. So uh, put the house on market in California. End up buying a house in New York. Market crashes. I lose four of my best clients in a week. Mm-hmm. In a week, I'm like, holy crap! I am just down in the mud. I cannot get out. And I said. Uh, I've got to fix this. So I went back to one of the classic, it's the number one motivational uh, album from the 50s called The Strangest Secret. And I listened to that probably 20 times a day. I started meditating and I left behind the guy who was sitting being worried. And I just said, if I can't believe in myself, then none of this works. And that that was a painful process because it, it is like learning a piano. You've got to be able to work through the failure and just say, I'm not there yet. It's okay because no one is there to say, it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. No one knows it's going to be okay. Yeah. And so when we got into the pandemic, uh, my my team, you know, I have a weekly meeting and they're like, so we're all fired, right? It's like, no. And like, but we just, I, it's like, I don't know, but we're not going to do that. That's not who I am. And so we ended up coming out of it even stronger. So I get it. You're going to be challenged. You're going to have things in your life that say, no, you got people tell you that that's a waste of time. And maybe it is. That's not the, that's not the challenge of an entrepreneur. The challenge of an entrepreneur is all those sites that they already have, you already have those in your head. And realizing if I give time to those, I am going to be crippling myself and just say, you know what? I just got to spend time to be focusing on that and then leave that behind. You know, I, I look back a little bit of regret and I think, who could I have been if I was this guy? when I was in college. Who could I have been? It's like, holy crap. And then on the other side, I go, you could have been nobody because all that made you this guy. And aren't you lucky that you're this guy today? And so I think that we're in this compare and contrast area where you know someone else has more than me and someone's this like, just be the best you. Just be willing to walk up to someone and be curious, why today am I meeting them? And I think if you just start out from that, you can't have a bad day because you're making somebody else's day first. And that sounds simplistic, but like everything I teach with retail, yeah, devil's in the details because it shouldn't feel like anyone notices it. It's you. I love that. You know, it's funny, funny you said about, you said that I wonder what it would have been like if I started, you know, just a decade earlier. And I was just saying that to my wife. I wonder what would have happened if I start, because I really, I was a entrepreneur for many years, uh, wanted to create it. I had a lot of great ideas, but never took action and only started taking action around 30, 31 years old. But I agree with you. I could have been different. I could have been no one. I could have been someone. It doesn't really matter. My journey is my journey and I can't change it. So I got to go with what I have and be good with it. All those times I thought, what am I ever going to learn in retail? Why am I doing this? It's not yeah. conduct. I still conducted a choir and orchestra in Los Angeles for 12 years. Still had a great time with all that. But when we start saying, what's this going to, and then you realize later on, like, wow, what a great experience that was. And just being grateful for those lessons you've got. And then just being able to move forward and say, so where do I want to go? Isn't that great? Remember, and I'll leave you on this thought. I remember Calvin and Hobbes. It was the only reason I'd get the LA Times because the Sunday comics were uh, Calvin and Hobbes. And the very last one, uh, he 
did was a pain of Calvin and Hobbes, and they're looking out over this uh, this scene, and it's just snowed. And uh, Calvin says, it snowed last night. And Hobbes says, where are we going to go? And that was it. And that's the same thing, I think, for your listeners, just to understand it snowed last night. Where do we want to yeah. go? Where do we want to go? a fun place to play rather than a million other places you could. So you've been great to have me on. I really appreciate it, it uh, to be here with you and really just to share the excitement of being an entrepreneur instead of the baggage and the awful whining or other things. It's a choice, right? Either you're successful or not, and you're both right. Just choose which one do you want to be. Ab- absolutely. So, Bob, I know my listeners are thinking, where could I contact Bob? Where could I get the RX formula? Where what, What's going on? Tell, tell the seven hatters how they can connect with you. So you can Google me, just Google the retail doctor. You'll find me pretty quick. You can find Bob Fibbs, P-H-I-B-B-S on LinkedIn. I got about 4,000 followers there. You can follow my thoughts there. Or uh, obviously go to salesrx.com. That's my online retail sales training program where you meet virtual Bob, <laughs> right? Train you, er, teach you everything that I know about how to engage a stranger, discover the shopper and make the sales. And then uh, I'm on Twitter and Facebook and all those places. But uh, just pick one of them and then just follow me and then engage with me. Tell me we heard you on this podcast and tell me what you got out of it. That would be great. Yes. And I've, I've been following Bob for a little bit and I've seen his lives on uh, Facebook and he's great. He really cares. He really wants to help. And it shines through. Bob, thank you for gracing us on the seven hats. We really, really appreciate you telling your story. And I hope that many will continue to be enlightened by your knowledge. Thanks, man. I appreciate it. Of course. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Bob. Let's end today with the segment of the show that I refer to as, what can we hang our hat on? And here's my takeaway. Back in 2006, when I launched my first CPG brand, I was a first time brand founder and had zero experience in retail. But ask any brand founder and they will tell you that once you're in CPG, you quickly get schooled on the difficulty of this industry, especially the retailer brand relationship. See, the retailer is the hub and where the shopper congregates. That means that if a brand is looking to succeed in retail, it's not only a requirement to have a great product, but it's critical to work with the retailer side by side as a partner in promoting your product to the shopper. Brands will tell you that it's difficult to promote and compete alongside all the other brands on the shelf. But the same holds true for the retailer. If they can't manage to bring in the shopper and keep them in the store, they will soon go out of business just like a brand would if they can't promote or manage the shopper relationship. Bob said that the brand used to be the hero, but not anymore. The shopper is now the hero, and the retailer needs to ensure that the shopper feels like they are the hero as they walk into the store. Otherwise, in this kryptonite world, the shopper walks out, and both the brand and the retailer suffer as a result. So how do you do it? How do you keep the shopper in the store so they can purchase more and more? Well, you need to train the retail staff to be curious, caring, and add value every time the shopper walks into the store. Make it an experience they can't get online. Bob said it right. If you're a retailer, it's your job to make their day. If the shopper doesn't get that, then you're just a more expensive, harder to get to warehouse. So don't be surprised if the shopper just types in www.amazon.com and takes care of business from their couch. I want to thank Bob once again for joining me so that we can all benefit from his wisdom 
And until next time, if you found this episode helpful, please hit that subscribe button and tell other entrepreneurs out there what value you received from it so we can attract even more high quality people into our Seven Hats community. So for now, I will bid you farewell and success on your journey. And until next time, my name is Yuval Selleck, and I tip my hat to you.